Welcome to Valley Community Church. Our Sunday sermons are available online to help you grow in your Christian faith. Our messages are practical and applicable truths from the Bible for today's life challenges. And now, Senior Pastor David Schmaltz. Right. In the beginning, in a series, started it last Sunday, and we're going to do uh, Genesis chapter 2 today, part 1, and uh, sat down with my uh, tech team, and we were going over our, the details in preparation for this series, and basically they told me, said, uh, Pastor David, prepare your sermon, then cut it in half. So, because... Uh, <laughs> Because they know that uh, it's a lot of material and, uh, in the time that we have. I want to begin very quickly because there's so much I want to get into is a correction or retraction from last week. And I, I really believe that I, I absolutely need to speak this because I made a mistake. And one, and matter of fact, after it came out of my mouth, I thought, boy, that doesn't sound right. So I went actually back and researched what I had found. And they had actually made a retraction and basically misunderstood it. But talking about human blood and uh, uh, Dr. Bryan probably c- caught this, but basically human blood, when it is dead, it is dead. There is no living organism in blood after it is dead. And uh, so I made a comment about that. Ron Wyatt, who was a well-known uh, researcher and he was involved in uh, finding the, in looking for the Noah's Ark and the covenant, um, the, uh, the tabernacle and the, uh, the covenant, um, and he spent um, many years in searching for that. He did find ancient blood on top of, of what was considered uh, a box that was holding the Ark of the Covenant and underneath of what was known as Golgotha at the time. He took the bu- blood, and this has been um, uh, corroborated, that, uh, and gave it to uh, researchers, and he sat right there with them. They reconstituted the blood with saline solution, and they looked at it, and they said, where did you get this? Because this blood only has 24 chromosomes, and 23 from a, on the male side, and only, I'm sorry, 23 from the female side, and only one from the male side. And they said, and this blood is alive. Where did you get this? And, uh, of course, you can find this on the Internet, and, uh, uh, which is very interesting. Whether this is true or not, uh, this was what I was referring to. Of course, this, so whether that was, we know that's not human blood and not in everyone's blood, um, we are immortal, but only in our spirit, not in our blood. We know blood has life, but as long as it's in the body, it has life. And so I apologize for the confusion on that. And, uh, and if what he found is true, that would be very, very exciting that if uh, he actually found what was considered the blood of Christ. All right, so I'm going to move on into chapter 2, and I'm just going to jump right in. And we're going to start with a summary of creation. So we talked last week as we opened up with the first six days and the seventh day, and uh, we'll get into that right now in chapter 2. Verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all of the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. It's interesting as we we read this, that again, 
specifics are everything. When you look at Scripture, we want to study what is said and also between the lines and often what is not said. Of course, the former being much more important than the latter. In other words, what God says is what we should, you know, stake our hope in. What God says and what we find in Scripture is where we should hang our hat and where we should build doctrine. What is not said, we should be very, very, very careful. Okay, so when we're talking about creation here, the first part of that, I want to make sure that you understand that, that there is a teaching in Scripture regarding God's rest in the seventh day. And this is made very plain, and I don't want to get into this uh, in detail at all, but it's made plain that in the New Testament, in the work of Christ, the age of rest, we now enter that rest, and that uh, the first day of the week is Sunday, and the Sabbath day is Saturday, and that as believers, we meet on Sunday to clarify that issue, that we are not Jewish, we don't identify with the Sabbath day in that way, but we celebrate the first day of the week because so many of the things that Jesus did uh, took place on that day. And so the truth is, we now are in, we walk in rest every single day. That's made plain to us in the book of Romans and the book of Hebrews. And so I'm going to move on from that and get into other parts that I believe are so uh, critical to what we're after today. So when we talk about God's creation, I want to make sure that you understand that whatever anyone believes regarding how much actual time that it took God to create the earth, one mu must look at this from at least two biblical perspectives, okay? And because, you know, I see a lot of people arguing over that, especially in the scientific world about, did God do it in act six actual days? Did he take a week to create the earth? And there's been argument back and forth. There's this thing called the day-age theory, and that each day rep represented an age, and it could have been thousands of years in that day, because, of course, they're... they're uh, Justification for that is that uh, to God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And uh, however, what we find in the specificity of his language is that he's talking about one day. So it would take us a jump. It would, it would, it would definitely have to stretch. We'd have to impose on Scripture something different in order to get there. So let's look at these two things that I just mentioned. First of all, there is the laws of nature and the law of miracles, okay? The, law, the laws that we see in nature, gravity, things decaying, things having what we see in, in nature and taking place around us every single day. We're able to observe these things. And from the day that God said, let there be light, we have watched the sun come up and go down, come up and go down. We've watched the stars in the sky move like an, an atomic clock that these things were set in place by God. And in, in, in observing these things, we call them the laws of nature. And that God put, we believe that God has put these in place. And again, we can observe them every single day. And those who think that God can only operate within these laws he's established, make God what I would call a hostage to nature. Okay? Why? Because of this other law called the law of miracles. In the Old Testament, we see hundreds of miracles. We see God obviously working in nature, but we also see God operating outside of nature. He parted the oceans. There's a record of, of that as the Israelites are fleeing. They talk and write of pillars of fire. They talk about uh, 
a pillar of fire that burns all night long. Moses described it. A million people watched it for 40 years. There was a cloud that was in the middle of the day. On a, on a cloudless day, there was one single cloud that sat in the, in the sky always for them to watch. And when it moved, they moved with it. This is called a miracle, my friends. This is something that we don't observe in nature every single day. That's the difference, okay? And so um, God stopped the sun for Joshua in battle. We see a destroying of a complete army in that one day as the, the, uh, the Pharaoh. And it's interesting as you study the Pharaoh of that time, uh, historically his line stops and no one knows what happens. You can't find out anymore what happened to that particular Pharaoh. Well, we know, the scripture tells us, he was destroyed in one day, his whole army. And we can also go to the New Testament, which some might find more believable. And that the miracles of Jesus, it's interesting that when he came, he came to almost rebuke all of us, even in the modern age, to say, I am not limited by my own creation. I am not limited by what you see every single day. And to prove it, bring me that blind man. And he could see. And he proved it over and over and over again. So when we see these miracles taking place, it's important for us to understand that here is God the creator living outside the bounds of what we see in nature. And this is absolutely critical because why? Because when we go back to think of creation and we say, well, God, you know, God is limited. God put it all in place. And then he just goes away and folds his arm and just watches it take place. In other words, it's just a wound-up clock that he is not going to ever touch again. But biblically, we know this is not true at all, that when Jesus came, he absolutely interrupted time and space. Over and over again, Jesus showed himself to be God based on that one principle alone, to show everyone, I am the creator because I'm continuing to recreate Right? Can the creator, is the creator of the eye unable to see? You know? So he comes and he says, I created those eyes, so I'm going to heal them. I created your body. I created your, your whole spirit, soul, and body. Therefore, if it is infested with demons, I'm going to cast them out of you. And it's interesting. The demons knew who Jesus was immediately. And so remember the, the, the Gadarene demoniac? They, they said, you know, what have you, what have you come? What are you going to do to us? They come into a confrontation with the one who had kicked all of those fallen angels out of heaven. Of course, they were aware of who he was. They probably remember the day. So the creator God comes. Jesus is there. He showed the world that what God made, that God made everything by arriving by virgin birth. He turned water into wine, healing bodies, changing the weather. Right? Remember when he rebuked the clouds and the weather and they're all out there, they're stuck in a storm and he said, cease, be still. It stops. This is what God can do. Okay? So sometimes we just disconnect there. When we think of creation, we say, well, God could never have done it. You know, and I'm not going on record here to firmly stomp my foot on the ground and say God did it in six days. It is my personal conviction. Okay, and I know people that I respect and love and have followed uh, do not necessarily believe that. That's just where I stand. And I have done a, a fair amount of reading that I believe I can find many who would call themselves scientists 
that uh, would agree with me. And I believe this is one of those places where I think uh, where it really catches us up, where it really causes us to realize that when we read the, the uh, first four chapters of Genesis, that God wanted us to see how big he was. And that would be a continuing conviction as it impressed and uh, impacted our life forever. So Jesus changes the weather. He casts out demons, as we know, causing a tree to shrivel up. And he says, you'll have no more fruit. Goes away, comes back. I mean, have you guys seen it? Anybody ever seen that happen outside of Monsanto's uh, roundup? And even that takes about a week, right? But Jesus just spoke to it. Why? Because he's the creator God. He made it. Okay? Uh, making a coin to show up in a fish's mouth. Hey, Peter, go down to the water. You'll get your tax. Go catch a fish. Bring it to me. Finds a, a, a coin in the mouth. Now, these are creative miracles, which are incredibly important to understand when we talk about the attributes of God. Raising the dead. A dead person that had already begun to decompose after three days. I'd say that's a creator God. That's a God who's not limited even by physical human death. That is a law of nature. The law, you know, of, of thermo, the second law of thermodynamics, everything going from, you know, order to disorder. This was happening. This, he, he was rotting in the grave, and Jesus walks up to it and says, come out. Creative miracle. Going back, hastening to a God who lives, and this is my point, that God lives outside the bounds of even the laws of nature that he himself put into place. That is key to remember, okay? When you think of creation, we cannot come, and this is so many make this mistake, is that they think that God, is, who set these, law, these laws into, into uh, effect, is now bound to them. That is not biblical, okay? That's my point this morning. It is not biblical. So it's clear that God's power, God's knowledge and influence definitely can change and influence nature in many ways. He's not bound to it. Sometimes the truth is definitely stranger and harder to embrace than fiction. So what God can do, and so many stories are written about such things, because why? It's been observed by the hand of God himself. So I am a great respecter of science, but at the same time, I'm also a greater respecter of the Word of God and the record and the testimony that has been given to us. So let's move on. Let's go to verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Okay? In chapter 1, we hear of God talking about creating man on the sixth day. What we find in chapter 2 is an overlay. We find Moses coming back and becoming more specific in the creation story as it involves man. Okay, So this is not a, a second creative act, as some might think. Some might say, well, there's, there's chapter 1, and God created a bunch of men. And then there's chapter 2, and God starts over again and starts with Adam. Mm -mm. This is just going back and describing the same event in more detail. Important to understand. So God breathes life into man's nostrils. It's interesting. He says that he was formed from the dust of the ground. When you study the word dust, 
it, it, it's, it's that. They used that word specifically. It didn't just say dirt. Because, you know, if you can go outside right now, you might. Uh, where's, our, where's our, there he is. Will is our dirt guy. And you can go outside probably right now and dig down in, in a foot of that dirt, and it's going to be kind of loam. It's going to have some moisture in it. It's going to have some organic matter in it. And you're gonna, you might even be able to make something stiff out of it. But that's not what God did. God took dust, okay, microscopic dirt. I mean, in other words, it's just no moisture in it, nothing. But in order to communicate to us that God took the basest of what was on the, plan, uh, on the earth at the time and created a man out of that. So God then put everything into man that made him a living being. He starts with practically nothing, but he did start with earth. And it's interesting that he would do that because we know later in Scripture that man who comes from dirt goes back to dirt. Isn't that right? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, what they say. And, wow, the law of nature teaches us that that's exactly what takes place in uh, when we die. What makes this man different? Now, I want to make another point here, too. What makes him different than the animals? Is that God says in Scripture that God made the animals, but it doesn't say that he breathed life into the animals, not in the same way. Now, we know that he, he did, that life came from him, that God instituted, but there is something especially unique. It says he took his own breath, and he breathed life into the nostrils of man. This is pretty cool. Because what we're, well, this hastens back to us being made in God's image, and then we're given something that comes from him. And, of course, the implications of this go on and on and on. But one of that I want to call your attention to is the importance of human life. Now, Christians, I want you to see, we, we fight over so many things in our society today. We, we argue back and forth about abortion. We talk about murder. We talk about injustice. We see the things taking place, and we talk about certain lives that matter over other certain lives, or we try to take all this together. Can I just go on record from what we've read right here that all lives matter? And to God, every single human life is important and special and unique to him, enough so that he sent his son to die for us. So don't get caught up in all of this mess out there, you need to embrace the fact that God has breathed life into every single human being. And that's where we got it. And that's what makes us different from everything else that God created. The word, the Hebrew word, nasham, talks about God's breath, specifically meaning it's God's breath. Later, out throughout Scripture, you don't see that word nasham used anymore. It's ruach. And ruach is the word to describe wind or the breath of God or the spirit of God. So if we were really specific about what took place here, is the spirit of God was placed inside us, not making us God, but bringing us to life and so that we, again, are in his image, not only in just physical appearance, but what is inside us and what we will then do in his name, so very, very powerful and so true. And when we think of the New Testament, and I like this even more, that when you come to Jesus Christ, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and what does he do? 
He fills us. Whoa. Is he breathing life back into our nostrils again? I believe so. Because when you study scripture, it's really amazingly cool to see how there is a, a major difference between a person who does not know Jesus Christ and a person who does. Paul describes this in the book of Romans by saying that we're literally, literally well not, not literally, but we are spiritually raised from the dead. That without a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are dead. We're dead men, dead men and dead women walking, just waiting for decomposition. That's a little scary, isn't it? But then when we come to Jesus Christ, he makes, us, he makes us alive. And what is taking place when we get filled with the Holy Spirit, except that the Ruach of God comes and he breathes into our nostrils once again and brings us to that place that God intended from the beginning. So very cool. It makes sense now that we see that God would do that. Why would God send the Holy Spirit? What was the point of doing that? Except that. It goes back. As we're learning, the principle of first mention, so important to give us light upon what we understand in the rest of Scripture, God did that to do what? To give us life. The Holy Spirit is here to give us life so that we understand him, that we can hear his voice, that we can walk and talk as the children of God. Without those, that, we are the basest of animals. Without that, we are just, we're just a shell of who we could be. And that makes, that's important for us to understand. Let's move on. Verse 8, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, and there he put the man he had formed. So this garden is something God uniquely set up and planted and created for man. Verse 9, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we can go on and ask, why would God do that? We'll never know until we get to heaven. But it's there. And God places them there. And I'm sure Moses was as he was writing this down, going and wanted to just stop and say, God, can I ask you, why did you do that? Because that seems like a real setup to me. I mean, you could have probably just put the tree of life there and not the other one, and everything would have worked out just fine, right? But I think what we find is that God is after something, that God was creating an opportunity to be able to reveal to his child who he was. And we don't understand what we have sometimes until we've lost it. And so however that fits into the grand scheme of things, I'm sure that definitely fits in there. That God, we don't know what love is until it's often compared to what love is not. And so here we have it. A river is watering the garden, garden and it flowed from Eden. Oh, interesting, interesting here. It doesn't flow through Eden. Where it, it, it comes from Eden. It is originating from Eden. We need to catch these things. From there it was separated into four headwaters. And the name of the first was the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. I better mark that and say gold. All right, let's, let's mark that on the map. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin, onks are also there. 
The only thing I want to say about that is why would God put that in there? Why would God give that to Moses except that these, what we call, they call this in study, specific markers to remind us of the, the originality and the fact when, when it's, it's like, yeah, I was going down to Fayetteville. Yeah, and I drove through this city and I saw this sign. And we all say, oh, I've, I've seen that sign. And what does that do? That makes you realize, oh, you've been there. You've actually driven down that road. You're not just making up a story. So here we have these markers that are unique to help us see, wow, we're not just making up, this is not a myth. This is not a fairy tale. This is something that was legitimate. He's bringing up geographical places that help us just go, bing, he's talking real life here. There was a garden in Eden. There was a place. There were four rivers, and here they are. they got names for them. What's interesting is that only a couple of those rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, are ones that we know that exist to this day. The other ones, they're not really sure because most of that land is desert and full of bombs and oil rigs. So the two trees are first mentioned right here in Scripture. And they're significant in their placement. We've, again, the specific geographic information is given to us to lend credence to the fact that this, this was an actual place. And God shows us that our moral choices are at the very center of our life choices and impact every part of our existence in every way. The true trees are not set on the side. The two trees are not sent, put in another garden. The two trees are placed in the very center of the garden. So if you want to get to one place or the other, where are you always having to pass through? Right where those trees are. Always a reminder of having to make the right choice. Do I follow God or do I follow my flesh? Now, in the case of the trees, Adam and, at this point, Adam and Eve doesn't, don't even know what the other tree is for. They just look at it and say, God told us not to eat it. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Truth is, he's telling only one person, right? And who is that one person? It's Adam. Eve isn't on the, on the scene yet. We're going to talk about that. But it's significant to understand that God places these trees right in the center. He talks about this water, the river, that flows out of Eden. And that gives us that understanding that life emanates from God's prepared plans for us. What we find is that God wants to create an Eden in your life, my friends. In other words, Eden represents the will of God for you. Yeah, there's the rest of the world. Yes, there's plenty of other places you could go. There are many other things that you can do. But when God prepares a place for you, God is speaking to Adam and saying, Adam, this is where I want you, this is where you're going to thrive. And to just show you the centricity of that, I'm putting the water right smack dab in it. And from it will flow to the rest of the world. So you got to understand that God places these things. These details are important because they have symbolic meaning right up until modern time. We can look at that and just say, wow, that's why he says, you should follow me. That's why he says that without me, you can do nothing. That's why he says, Jesus comes and says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. 
Because when we embrace God's plan for our life, when we embrace and God says, look, this, I've created this for you. I've created this opportunity. I've created this situation in life. And yet so many of us are looking at it saying, it's not enough. Of course, we're going to see this with, with Adam and Eve later. But the point we're supposed to get is that what God has made for us needs to be sufficient. It needs to be what we say is this is my place. This is where God wants me to, to plant my roots. Roots. This is where I'm supposed to be. It is from that place that life is going to flow. We all know this, don't we? I mean, this is bumping up against something that each of us knows as believers, that when we are in the center of God's will, that is the place where we feel well-watered. That's where we feel growth. That's where we feel the greenness and the fruitfulness of our life. It's when we get outside that that we say, man, I'm drying up and drying up quick, and I don't really know why, except that when I was in the center of God's will, I was doing a whole lot better. Am I right? I mean, I think we can all testify. So let's move on. Verse 15. The Lord God took man, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now this, of course, since the, the writing of these words has perplexed man for thousands of years. I mean, it's just, we're looking at a verse that is incredibly full of, of, of wonderment. Why, God? But if we dig a little deeper, what we're going to see here is the essence of the purpose and will of God. He says, look, I'm giving you two things. I'm giving you paradise, and I'm giving you provision. What more is there? What more is there? I mean, paradise? I mean, people spend millions of dollars to get to paradise, right? In the Caribbean and in places that people want to go. We run from our lives to get to paradise, because in paradise, what happens? No care, no worries, no this, no that. I keep looking at Dr. Brian because he's from the Caribbean and he writes music that way. But anyway, but paradise is definitely what we're all seeking deep inside. You know, we think, man, if I could just be in paradise. But we find right here that that's exactly what God gave to Adam. He gave him a paradise where there are animals, where there are beautiful, every kind of tree. Every kind of tree. You mean coconut trees? You mean all kinds of trees? Every kind of tree you can imagine. There. Then God gave him provision. And he also gave the ability for Adam to understand what was good for him and what was not good for him. What was meant for him and what was meant for just the animals. And God said, look, of all this stuff, it's all yours. So then he talks about these trees, the two trees that stand in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Again, symbolic, but actual. Symbolic. Why would God do it? I don't know. But he did it. And in that place, what he does is he says, this tree of life is where you need to camp. That is where you need to focus. 
So what we see here, if at very, at very least, that what God tells us is what is true. When God says something is good for you, then it is upon that that we must focus, amen? And God says to us, that's not good for you, we are supposed to say, okay, gotcha. I believe you, God. I trust you, God. And so he places these two trees there to do what? To cause us to believe in God's words. It causes us to trust and continue to put our hope and our weight and our life in him. Folks, if you look at our society today, you find people running from Scripture. You find people wanting to burn the Bible. You wanting, matter of fact, a rapper. I don't know his name. I just read the, read the title, but it says a rapper says, you know what, all that's going on in the whole sexual identity thing is just a rebuke to God. It's just basically telling God, you screwed up. And I look at that and just say, you know, God's probably not going to strike him dead and I mean, nothing's going to happen to him. But those words, they just come out and they just remind our society, they just remind us all. Folks, we are hell-bent on running from the ways of God. And, and, and in the end, what we're running from is God's paradise and God's provision because we, we, we're falling for the knowledge of of good and evil. And I, I will take a little minute to just describe what that is, if you're wondering. But essentially, what it is, is it's an awakening of conscience. What we find is that sometimes what you don't know, right, that ignorance is bliss. In this case, that's basically where that began. And God is saying, look, Adam, all you need to know is what I've given you to know. And that's hard. Whew. That is so hard for us as humans, isn't that right? And of course, that could go into so many other fields and so many other thoughts, but God has also made us very curious. God, part of that curiosity is something that God has given us, but that curiosity has to come up against a wall, in essence, when God says, you don't need to know that. Very much like when we tell our children, you don't, you don't need to watch that. You don't need to see that. And God is, is telling that. He says, and so what we need to understand is that it's not just the tree of evil. It's a tree of knowledge. And knowledge is something, again, and you, you see it on television, you see it on the, that, that knowledge is, is something that we should all thirst for, that should, we should want more. But how many of us are willing to sit in this chair today and say, boy, I wish I didn't know that? A certain thing, Right? Wished I hadn't have seen that. Wished I hadn't have done that. Wish I didn't know that. And we've all been there. I remember I went to see a movie one time. It was called Saving Private Ryan. And all my buddies were telling me, Pastor Dave, you got to go to this movie, man. It's amazing. World War II epic movie. And I'm like, so I'm thinking so many of the guys in the church would tell me I needed to go. So it was, it was like 4 o'clock. And I thought, man, I can catch a, an early show. So I kind of didn't have any appointments. So I took off and I went. And I went by myself, which was not a good idea. But I went, and I sat through this, whatever, I guess three hours, almost four-hour-long movie. When it was over, I stumbled into the parking lot. Now, you know, I've I got to tell you my own experience, but I stumbled into the parking lot like I had just been through battle. And I was, I was I mean, I was PSD. Is that what it is, post-traumatic, or PTSD, or whatever it was? I mean, yeah. I, mean, I was stumbling around like, 
And then I went home and I literally, I repented to God because I, I, I had unlocked some things and there were visions and images in my head that I couldn't get out. And it was like I had been there and I was put in this, 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 these helpless moments where people are dying and I couldn't do anything about it. And the movie was appealing to something to me that is very base as a man and that is protection. And when I see somebody suffering or hurting, I'm gonna, I'm gonna open up a can of whoop to get involved in that. But when I'm watching it and can do nothing, what does that do to you? I mean, so I'm looking, I'm walking out and I just said, God, forgive me. Because I actually had gone through something I had no grace to actually go through. Now, I can get into a big teaching on that, but the bottom line is, if God has created, if God has put us in a battle mode, he's also going to give us the grace to be able to walk through it. So if there are any young people in our world today that will end up having to fight a battle, that, you know, it is for such a time as this, to protect and to stand. On that day, I was just watching a movie. I wasn't prepared or you put in that place at all. And so there I had a good ex- opportunity to eat of the knowledge of good and evil, and it didn't work out so well for me, for my soul. And so there is sometimes that innocence and ignorance is bliss. And so, again, we find this in the smack dab middle of the garden. And it's hard. It's hard for us. You know, to tell someone, you know, drugs are bad. And yet young people, they wear that away, and they, there's the knowledge. It's sitting right there in the middle of, the life, of their life, and there's the big apple or the big fruit just dangling, and everybody's coming and going and eating of it, and yet they just think that, well, if everybody else is doing it, it must be okay, except they don't see the devastated lives. They don't. Once again, this starts in the very beginning of man. His human experience involves trusting the creator. So base, so, so important to our human existence, our longevity, our, 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 the enjoyment of, of being human beings. It, the more we trust God, follow God, believe in his ways, walk in his ways, the better off we're going to be. And that involves so many other parts that I just don't have any time to get into. But come every Sunday from here on out, we'll get into them. Okay, it'll just take us a few years, maybe our lifetime. That guarantees some membership for a while, doesn't it? Amen. All right. Just kidding. So God gave the garden to Adam to care for it, right? Let's go back to that. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Okay, so he tells him that. Let me back up. Oh, so he puts him in the garden, and can I go up to verse 15? He says, to work it and to care for it. Uh Uh-oh. For all those people who think that work was just a result of the fall, it's a curse. Okay, you hear what I'm saying? Because I've heard this taught before. Uh Uh-uh. Labor is pre-fall. Labor and working in the garden is something that God gave us to do even before the bad stuff breaks out. He says, look, I have given you this garden and I'm placing you in the middle of it. Now you work it, you care for it. It's what I've given you, but it's important that you understand that you have to take care of it. 
that you have to labor, that you have to go out and, and keep the shrubs trimmed and you have to pick the fruit. You're not just going to sit there like what we see in the, the, the ancient paintings and Adam and Eve are just sitting there, you know, and things are just fall. They hold their hand out and the, the stuff just drops in. That's what we think that Eden is. It's not. Adam, you know, he gets out there and God says, now, Adam, I give this to you. Now, this is important for us to understand. He said, this is yours. Now, go and take care of it. So that's pretty critical when we think in terms of what I would call a God-given purpose. A purpose. Toil existed before the fall. God intends to give us joy in our labor as we care for what he has given us. Thus, labor is necessary, even for those who don't know the Lord. But it is far better if we work. Now, listen to this. Uh, this is actually uh, uh, Colossians chapter 3.23. And I'm just going to read this. I actually just jumped right into it. But it says this. Thus, labor is necessary, even for those who don't know the Lord. But it is far better if we work, not just to earn a living, but to please the Lord. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. This taps into something that is given to Adam in the very beginning. And so we can quabble and we can get into fights about labor and things like that. But see, you know what? We all, you know, we got to make a living, don't we? And we, we go out there and we're, we're laboring. But can I give you a little helpful piece of advice? Okay? And that is when you walk into work, as you're walking into those doors, under your breath to say, God, this is to you today. I may have a boss. I may have a manager. I may have all these people that are standing, but to, when, when you go in and you say, God, I give it to you, and I'm serving you today, man, I'm telling you, it's going to make the whole day a totally different experience. I remember doing that in several of the jobs that, that, that I had that were secular jobs. And I remember some of them I just really did not want to have to be doing because of some of the things that I encountered, the darkness that was thrust upon me. And sometimes just almost going insane over the, the, the levels of stress that they involved. But I remember but getting on my face before God and say, God, I'm doing this as unto you. And that means... If I have to take a little extra time and, 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 and make sure that this is done in excellence, and if I do this as to you, because doing it as to a person that we, have a lot, we don't have much respect for, that's hard, isn't it? And it will influence our working uh, skill. It will influence how well we are working. And then when we get fired or we don't get promoted, we want to blame that person. It's not, not the way it works. This, this, I'm just giving you a little practical advice here. Adam, and Adam was given the garden to work and to toil in. It was a part of his existence. It was a part of what God called him to and essentially enabled to embrace the plan of God and purpose in our life. You see it all here symbolically and how it affects our life today. He says, Adam, you're free to eat of everything. Now, I love the way this is set up for us. He says, Adam, you can eat everything in the garden except the one. Now, check this out. When you look, think of your own life right now. What God is trying to show us here is that God is giving us everything with very few exceptions. And yet, it's when we say, oh man, I love everything, but it's not complete until I have that one thing. 
And man, I can, I can list off of many, many things. But I mean, let's think about the knowledge of good and evil and how that might manifest itself in our popular culture today. Sex before marriage. Other areas of, of, of treating our fellow man unkindly. Speaking curses upon one another. Of course, we could talk about the things that we would consider against the law, like murder and theft. But let's talk about theft. Because sometimes, you know, Christians feel like that they can do certain things that they're allowed to based maybe upon your, your experience. Or maybe because somebody has taken from you, well, then now all bets are off. You can take from them. Mm-mm. God says, look, I've given you everything. There is a sphere of blessing in your life. And when you live within that sphere, man, you are going to be happy. You're going to be healthy. You're going to, have, you're going to see that the things and the people in your life are going to prosper. There's going to be blessing and favor upon you. You don't even have to read a, a best-selling book to figure that out. All right? It's right here. This is not about what you can't do. This is about what you are free to do. God didn't go into the garden and say, look, yeah, you got a bummer deal, man. All this stuff. But that tree, man, is really going to be a problem for you for the rest of your life. He didn't say that. He said, this garden is a wonderful thing. By the way, don't eat of that tree because it'll kill you. I mean, it's no different than, than our fathers or our mothers taking us out into the field and say, look at all this wonderful sea of, of this wonderful fruit sitting out in this field. Look at this garden. But that stuff growing up in between, that's poisonous. Don't eat it. I mean, I do that with my kids all the time. And I teach them to recognize plants and things like that. They found sassafras for the first time. And I said, how do you find it? And I taught them. It's the dino- dinosaur toes. They dinosaur toes. They love the dinosaur toes. Teaching them, teaching, but that is bad. Never touch that. That's called poison ivy. And all my kids can spot that a mile away. So I'm teaching them. God says, look, everything here is awesome. It's good for you. Just don't eat that. Mm-mm-mm. Well, we'll find out next week just how that breaks down. So today, people, when they think about what God is saying, when they see God saying to them, look, I love you, but there are limitations on your life. And that's all the world tends to see, is that God is just this big killjoy, that he just wants to take away partying, and he wants to take away the freedom of choice. And I don't want a God who tells me what I can't do. But see, it's because they don't understand who our God is. What God is really saying is, I've given you the whole world. I've given you the ability to choose and to, to be whatever you want to be. Just don't do those things. So people ask many times when they think about, you know, after the fact, when they think of sin and the right path, they might ask this question, well, why can't I see it? Why can't I see the good path? My answer to that is it's because you're not looking hard enough. It's not looking hard enough. The truth is the tree of life is sitting right smack dab next to the, knowledge, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's right there. It's right there. God's purpose, God's plan for your life is so very close. It's there. It's it's right for you to reach out and grab and eat of it. If you will just 
push past. A lot of times what it means for us is to stop even looking at that one. All right, so let's finish up. The tree of knowledge of good and evil symbolizes a powerful truth because God places those things in Adam's life at the very beginning. This is pre-fall. This is before the, the, the choice to eat of that. And we'll talk about that next week. But God places those things in our life. And, and really, this is so as much a teaching for believers today. It's not something that unbelievers can really understand. Or, I mean, it's, it's just foolishness to them. But for us, we see the symbology. And it's speaking very loudly. Choose God's ways and you will be happy. We know later that when they don't, they're kicked out of paradise and they struggle with provision for the rest of their lives. We know that next week we'll find out that disobedience is death because that's what God warns Adam right here. He says, for the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You know, God loves to cut right to the heart of things, doesn't he? He didn't say, when you eat of it, you're going to have a real severe stomach problem. When you eat of it, you're going to break out with a, a rash. When you eat of it, you're going to be sad for a couple of days. When you eat of it, it's going to be a bummer. It's going to taste. No, no, God says, look, if you eat of it, you're going to die. Just pure and simple. Adam, of course, didn't know what death meant, I don't think. Except, once again, he needed to just trust God. So when we, when we as parents tell our children, look, don't take drugs, don't have premarital sex, don't do these things because in the day that you do, you're going to experience spiritual death. What's spiritual death, mom, dad? Well, in some cases they can say, well, look at what happened to me. But in many cases, we don't have anything to give them except trust me. So to finish, today we need to walk away with these thoughts. We need to recognize that God can do anything, anytime, anywhere, that God is God. Can you say amen to that? Amen. The book of Genesis, the creation story is there to teach us. God didn't have to include it, but he did. And he did so to teach Moses and his people that God is God that the gods of the, the pharaohs, that, that the gods of the lands that they were getting ready to uh, take over, they were not God. But the God they were following is God. Secondly, that God has an Eden for every one of us. And do you know where to find it? Do you know where to find it? We'll, we'll finish our whole series in coming back to that, but that's something that we need to know, is that the will of God is in the center of it. And that God does have a provision for it. Does it mean a perfect life? No. Does it mean that, you know, it's going to be like the Garden of Eden? No, I'm afraid we'll never be able to experience that kind of situation again until, of course, the end. And God has created each of us. We have the same Father, and has filled us with his life. And life can be simple if we choose to embrace God's instructions simply. So we understand these things conceptually, but folks, it often, as it does with, as, as believers, it comes down to this one thing. It's a choice, isn't it? Do we have a choice? We do. That's, that's what God gave. God could have said, Adam, I'm putting in this garden. You'll do exactly as I say. I'm going to wind you up, and you will just be my little toy. 
But he didn't. He said, Adam, I'm going to help you. You cannot understand the scope of what love is and freedom until you have a choice. Unfortunately, it didn't work well in the end. But God said, okay, you didn't want to take the short plan. Now we're going to go on the extended plan because he prophesies of the coming of Christ. We'll look at that next week. So let's stand up this morning and let, let's pray together because we do have a choice today, don't we? And as believers, I'm going to tell you, you've got something more. When the Holy Spirit indwells you, we're promised in Scripture that he causes us to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's one of my favorite verses, by the way. Because when I'm feeling overwhelmed by the consequence of bad choices, when I feel overwhelmed by bad choices that are knocking on my door, I just go to the Lord and say, Lord, I need you to come and convince my soul. I need you to come and fill my mind and remind me Help let truth just rise up in the middle of my life so that I will remember that redemption is good, <laughs> that the ways of God always prove true and righteous, and, 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 and will, I'll bear fruit for days and weeks and if not years. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning as we finish. Lord, we know that as we study this, this record of creation, Lord, you, you presented some trees in that garden. And Lord, in reality, those trees are still there. They're still there in the very middle of our life, symbolically. Will we choose you in your ways? Or will we, God, say, you know, no, I want to know more. I'm curious about what the wicked does. That knowledge of evil. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to trust you. Trust Lord, as believers, God, it, it, in some ways, God, it does offend our sense of freedom, our sense of curiosity. But Lord, there's nothing else in the universe that we can trust more than the one who made us. You have the very best intention. And Lord, is it not foolishness, God, for us to fight against you? Lord, is it not, Lord, ridiculous to us for us to think that we are the clay and that we can say to the potter why did you make me this way and that lord for us to even consider trying to jump off the wheel and to become something else yeah lord forgive us but lord in its place i pray that you pour us in, into us god fresh confidence that lord it is your holy spirit that is in us that will cause us to will and to do. And that, Lord, your patience, even if on one day we choose to eat the wrong fruit, you're there to forgive us, to wash us, and to put us right smack dab in the middle of your paradise. And that's the beauty. That's the beauty of being a Christian today. Not that we're free to sin and be forgiven, but that, Lord, you're patient and loving and kind, and, Lord, you're going to give us a lifetime to figure this thing out. Thank you for that, that gift, Lord. So, Lord, as we leave today, God, impress upon us, Lord, who we are. And may we walk that way as the children of God, empowered, Lord, reckoning ourselves dead to sin and alive to you in all that we do now. In Jesus' name, amen.